0: Hello and welcome to episode number 268 of the Armin Show podcast, where it is just getting cooler and cooler out here. On this episode, who do we have from New York? You may know her as soon after you get to know her, Dr. Mariam Bakir, MD. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
0: This is a wonderful thing. I am glad to have you on. You are in New York. What area of New York? I was there. We met each other there. Long live that uh, na- area. Uh, yeah. Where are you at?
1: I live in downtown Brooklyn. We met in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But I live in downtown Brooklyn, close to Brooklyn Bridge, actually. And Brooklyn is also where I work. Mm-hmm. So it just made sense to find an apartment here. We We got a really good deal here. I love the neighborhood.
0: Now, information for the folks, when she says we, companion Shan, who was on the show. before. of course, of course. (laughs) Classic. Uh,
1: I mean, we, I mean, your previous
2: guest. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Previous guest and similar personality type, Shan, uh, on the show, you're in Brooklyn. Now, and have you enjoyed it thus far, or do you plan to leave Brooklyn? Do you plan to stay there? What are your thoughts as far as that area?
1: So, I love it here. I love it here. Um, Honestly, when I was not living in New York and I used to come here just as a tourist, Yes. Um, most tourists uh, just focus on Manhattan and I did the same. Um, and, their, and their exploration of Brooklyn is usually just limited to Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't really get to know the rest of Brooklyn, I think, um, if they're just coming here as tourists. Um, and I did the same when I was visiting New York um, before living here. Um, But thanks to the fact that I got a job in Brooklyn, I started looking for um, good neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And frankly, I didn't know about downtown Brooklyn before I moved here. And I was almost embarrassed that I never knew about this wonderful neighborhood here. Um, It's uh, extremely accessible. It's very close to Brooklyn Bridge Park. There is a very accessible um, subway station here that goes pretty much everywhere. Um, and it has everything. So we have a beautiful park here. We have we have restaurants and bars here. We have um, Whole Foods here, <laughs> um, which, um, yeah. So, and, and they have some really nice apartment buildings in this area as well. So, um, yeah, so that's where I've been for the past three years. Although, well, two and a half, three years um, ending this year in December. um, Although now my next job may require me to move a little up north, since now my new hospital is gonna be in the Bronx.
2: Um,
1: So if, I don't know, I'll see. I'm, I'm not moving anytime soon. So if I don't mind the commute, I might just stay in downtown Brooklyn. Otherwise we've already started looking for places in Manhattan um to just make my commute a bit more sustainable
0: that makes sense we like sustainability out here when something's going well you want to maintain it in some form
1: exactly exactly it's going well so i really i would really miss this building actually whenever i leave um and in fact we've already looked for like different apartments in the same neighborhood if i feel the transportation is something manageable i might just stick around but let's (laughs) yeah no i love it here it's just um And also as an immigrant, someone from um, outside the United States, I also felt that just generally, it was very easy to gel in here. It was just, well, that's pretty much all of New York, but um, it was, um, yeah, it was just very, it was just very fun to be in right on day one. So yeah, love it here.
0: There's a fun factor to it. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned immigrant. Tell us the story of that leading to where you currently are, some of your background leading to where you are.
1: Right, so the story is, um, I'm originally from Pakistan. I'm from um, the biggest city actually, Karachi. Um, And that also connects with the fact that I like being in New York so much because I feel that Karachi and New York have many similarities. Um, Karachi is also like the biggest metropolitan city of the country where everybody comes to look for job opportunities. Um, so we have around 20 to 22 million people, those we have counted just in that city. So I come from a very busy, hustling, bustling, um, disorganized city, um, where, which also doesn't sleep at all. <laughs> so that's where I am from originally. I was actually born in Iran. We've talked about this once.
0: My, my country um, of birth.
1: Yep, actually, I was actually born there, but I didn't live there for more than two or three years of my life. Um, then, so I'm a Pakistani, um, and, uh, I went to medical school in Pakistan and then I decided to, um, go abroad for my physician training, which is called residency here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, United States is one of the, uh, like it's usually where people, you know, uh, if they want to go and get, um, further medical training, U.S., by far, is the country that uh, takes most immigrants for mm. physician training. Um, so yeah, that's uh, um, yeah, that's that's the story.
0: Now, here's the thought that came to my mind: If you went back to Karachi at this current moment, what's the biggest thing you'd be missing from your current place at New York? Like, what would be the biggest shift that you would notice?
1: I think the biggest shift in Karachi would be. Um, just the sudden lack of freedom and independence, despite the fact that even if you're financially independent, it's just that as a woman, um, in Pakistan, you just lose the ability to, um, just spontaneously make plans, just do whatever you want without thinking twice. So that would be, I think the biggest thing that I enjoyed when I moved here and I would miss if I ever go to Karachi. Um, For men, it's still different, but as a woman, I always had to think twice, thrice before planning something, going somewhere, um, what to wear, where to go, where to not go, who to go with, whether or not to go alone. Um, So in New York, for example, I've I've been out at 3 a.m. even, so. Um, so I've gotten kind of used to that independence, that spontaneity of making plans about anything I want to do. Um, uh, yeah. So that would be something that I always crave when I was there. It's difficult. You, you can justify that in many ways as well. It, it, it is a matter of safety, um, many a times and you have to be careful there. And I would always advise people to be careful there, but it's just something that I just didn't have to think about. Um, when I moved here, for example, so yeah, yep. I think it would be something that I would read
0: <laughs> You have way more autonomy in your current location yeah,
1: just making just making decisions about whatever, be it going to the grocery store three minutes away to some place an hour and a half away, just doing whatever I want, anything I've scheduled, a meeting activity, whatever grocery like just from big to small is just. Um, it's just that spontaneity, the independence, the ability to not think about anything—it's um, just very liberating. And it's it's difficult to exercise that when you're a woman um, in a country like that. So yeah.
0: I very much like that concept. When I think about a person and the things they want to do, and then the distance from them to that is the inefficiency in their life. Like, oh man, I have to, but I have to double think it. Oh man, I want to do that, but I can't do it right now. That just cuts off part of the point of your existence so it's nicer when you get closer to that where it's like i want to do it. well you can do that and then you go and then yeah. do that yeah
2: yeah yeah it's very exactly. freeing exactly exactly so right now and, he-
1: similarly there are many things that are about pakistan and karachi that i miss when i'm here um what's one of those um pakistan and karachi is like Honestly, as much as I love my freedom, I really miss the pampering people get there. Um, the what people get there? The pampering, like we oh. just, I was very pampered all my life there. I didn't have to think about anything related to my household activities, for example. It's just the, the your, your around, um, it's and, more and our families around, and our families are all like, you know, our families, like my immediate family has, like I have three siblings and, and, and my parents and everything. But then you have an ex- you have a very beautiful concept of extended family in Pakistan. Um, so it's like your family is basically twenty five to thirty people at a minimum. Um, uh, so it's just you know people meeting together, dining together, uh, the fun activities every weekend. You don't really have to go outside your circle. You already have so many family members to have fun with your cousins and this and that. And then with that also comes the fact that. Um, um, there's just so many people to help around and stuff that i i don't know it's just although I do feel that like it, it the pampering comes at a cost because you know if you're so pampered, then you don't have to think about anything in your household like i i I never did laundry, I never ironed my clothes whenever I was there um i I did if I had to, but I never really had to um so and and those things just completely change when you start living on your own of course um so as much as I understand that um you need to do that to to gain that independence that I always craved anyway I know that I I it's there but just like when you have so many things piled up you sometimes do really wish you 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 had a mom to cook for you like Like I would just come home from medical school and my entire table would be like laid out with everything from starters to main course, to dessert, to milkshake, to juices. (laughs) Everything was just ready. And all I had to do was just um, bring myself on the chair and that's it. And I I didn't even have to worry about doing the dishes. Um, And that just completely changes when you move abroad. So it's it's, it's a mixed feeling because um, as much as, I also really appreciate my independence here. So with independence, you have to realize that you have to do all these things yourself because that's that's part of gaining the independence that I always craved. Mm-hmm. But when it gets too much, when it gets just too much and you have just way too many things to do, um, you do start craving just that environment in Pakistan where there's so many people to help you around, where you have a mother, you have a father. <laughs> just that, yeah, so yeah so you see it's just family you miss family and you miss the things they do for you you miss how you can take them for granted um yeah it's
0: a little bit, a little more, bit more collectivist collective. not as much individualist
1: yeah absolutely exactly it's very um yeah we like things operate there as a unit you have to yeah exactly it, it's very collectivist it's like it's, it's, it's a different way of living life there so mm-hmm. um,
0: um yeah we liked it that's a cool feature the differences in nations each nation really has a certain that and if you have to kind of blend into that or else you probably in other places better fit
2: yeah exactly
0: now after that you have gone to medical school why mm-hmm. i always like to check the category why a doctor why not one of the 800 other options moving forward why why medical? How does that interest you? How does that connect with your personality, also?
1: Why medical school? So I have a very uninteresting and a very
0: we'll be the judge of that.
1: One. I have a very, I have, I have a reason that is not that creative and not that interesting. Okay. Uh, but I also have lots of reasons to back it up. So it it stems from the fact that my parents are physicians to begin with mm-hmm. they're doctors to begin with so i had a very early exposure um to this career um like literally right from childhood i i saw what my parents did
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and and that's where um so that's so basically that that profession was something that i saw day in and day out i saw how my parents worked um at the hospital, I saw how they were at home, I saw why they were in it, what they were doing, what was it all for. Um, so, so so, naturally, that's just something that draws your attention um, towards this particular profession. But at the same time, I also knew that if I didn't like it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, if I didn't like the kind of lifestyle my parents were leading, if I didn't, if I didn't like the values or the principles they were standing for, um, behind um, being in this profession, I also knew I had the liberty to to be any of the to be to join any of the other 800 professions out there. Mm-hmm. So, so even though I was exposed, my biggest uh, motivation, which stands true to date, because there's no way you can do this unless you have that motivation and the passion yourself, because it's a very long road. Medicine is a very long road and you, you need a lot of commitment to get through it. And I don't think you can do it just because your parents are physicians. So, so even though I got that exposure early on um, um, through them, I, I, I paved my way through medical school and medicine at large because I really felt passionate about, um, about health care mm-hmm. um, um, it was, it was, and it was also the fact that if you, if you, um, if you join medical school and if you go into the field of, um, medicine and healthcare, um, there are also just so many different possibilities that you can go into there. If you want to be in the, um, in the clinical setting, if you want to be a clinician, you have like 20, 25, maybe even 50, like different specialties and subspecialties to go into. Um, If you don't see yourself as a clinician who who takes care of diseases directly and patient-to-patient interaction directly, you can go into public health, you can go into global health, you can go into activism, you can go into um, nutrition, you can go into preventive medicine, you can go into um, just so many different opportunities out there that you can go into healthcare administration, you can go into hospital leadership, you can go into just so many different areas Um, by, um, by joining a profession like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I was very young when I went to medical school in, in Pakistan, you join medical school when you're 18 actually. So -hmm. it's a very young age. Um, and at that time I, I knew this was something that was, that was, that I was very passionate about, but I wasn't like everybody else. I wasn't hundred percent sure exactly what kind of a doctor I'm going to be eventually. But I knew that, you know, if I, if I enter this profession and if I explore it, I know the options are so much that I will find what I love, um, that I will make my way through to be where I want to be. Um while keeping in mind that whatever I do is is going to be um, for the single most important vision of, of benefiting people, of helping people, of being able to do something. Um, I just, yeah, it was just my way of justifying my existence in this world that I'm here to um, I always used to question, I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs> I didn't ask to come here. <laughs> um, so if I'm here, what am I supposed to do? Um, and it's just this this fire inside me where I feel that just being isolated in your own interests. Um, and you can help people in many ways. So it's not just medicine that helps people. You can help people in, in millions of ways. I don't need, even need to go into that. Mm-hmm. But it was just this love for biology, love for physics and chemistry. I love the sciences. I loved what it meant. I loved humanities. I love talking to people. I love um, exploring um, problems. And it just felt like something that would just amalgamate everything. And with the pace of time, I knew I will eventually find what, what my heart really desires. And I'm already there. So um, yeah, so the exposure, I got it through my, my parents, but it was really my own motivation, my own passion that, that led me through, because there's no way you can do it just because your parents are also doctors. You need to have that driving force because the long, the, the road is long. The road is very long. Um, and it's full of, um, sacrifices. It's full of, um, challenges. It's full of, um, obstacles and you can do it if you really have a certain vision for it. Um, so yeah, that's why I chose it.
0: Mm-hmm. External motivations or pressures can only go so far at some exactly, point.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So um, uh, it was, and I, I got exposed to it. So I'm thankful to my parents for that, but I definitely give credit to my own fire inside me for this particular field that led me through to this date. So
0: my laptop is burning because your fire is coming through it at this time.
1: I like that. I like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's actually reasonably at this time classic now that there's some real good messages along i always like to if it was up to me i would break down each message along the way but there's some good life messages there now Uh you have now taken that through recently you have been a doctor in a very interesting moment which i will preface slightly with my first visit to new york transition from normal new york to odd new york Uh, leading up to the moment that you have recently traveled through since then. Now we have had some sort of virus pass through the earth. And what has been your experience with this in recent months at your medical facility, treating patients of that?
1: My experience has been one that I think I'm going to be talking about for
0: generations to
2: come. (laughs) Um, It's
1: just, it's, it's surreal it's like I can go on and on and I'm and I'm still in the process of of really processing what exactly happened um and what it means to me um and acknowledging how it has impacted me in every way um so I work at um one of the largest hospitals in Brooklyn and Brooklyn is one of the most um it is actually the populated, it's the most populated borough of New York. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I mentioned this because that just, that gives you a sense of exactly what kind of um, um, crisis we went through because we, um, it's a big hospital that attracts most of Brooklyn. Um, So that's where we were. And and, and my normal days, even pre-COVID, Um, were already very challenging. We always had a very high census on a daily basis of patient census. Our patients were always, this is all pre-COVID even. So I'm I'm trying to give you the background that we were already doing um, some, we were already going through some really, the work we were doing was already very challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, Where we have, um, I think I read this um, um, study where they felt that um, We have about 30 languages spoken in the hospital. So Brooklyn is such a multicultural, multilingual um, borough that we have so many languages here. Um, So I'm already working at a place that is always beaming with patients. We are always at a high census, extremely complicated cases. Um, Our age group used to be at least like majority of my patients are 70 and above. So that already brings a lot of complications because by that time you have like 500 million um, issues going on. Um, So it was already a very tense um, uh, environment to work in um, with language barrier so that you're doing all of this with interpreters in between because you're dealing with life and death situations um, um, without the person in front knowing English. So, um, so you know, so it's, it's a very, it, it's a very challenging environment to work in, and then comes in COVID, which basically, which basically, I mean, I'm laughing right now, but I've spent right. my months crying.
2: Right.
1: Um, it basically increased, amplified everything five times. Um, the census went up five times. We initially, back in March, started with naively started with um, restricting our COVID patients to one floor so that we could spare the rest of the hospital and keep them isolated in one area, also for infection control purposes. But I don't think that even lasted seven or eight days, because by seven eight days after that, the entire hospital basically became COVID. Um, it was it was it was absolutely surreal to see what was going on because. Um, you know, a typical hospital has multiple different departments, specialties. You have you have um, you have surgery, you have pediatrics, you have um, gynecology, obstetrics. You know, everybody has different floors, different wards, different kinds of patients. Um, surgery has so many um, branches as well. You have orthopedic surgery, plastic surgery, trauma surgery, um, general surgery. So every floor has different patients, and within ten days, the entire hospital just had COVID. There was no surgery. There was nobody with cancer. Well, they moved cancer patients overnight, actually. So overnight, they developed a new facility, um, my hospital. Um, they developed facilities or areas to move our cancer patients elsewhere, move our pregnant ladies elsewhere, because we needed space to keep these COVID patients to, it was, if you, if you went down into the emergency at that time, it was like, it's exactly like how a war zone would look, because Um, people were just stacked next to each other because there were so many people that you just didn't have, we just didn't have space to keep them. Where are you going to keep them? So we created, in fact, in front of my eyes, the baby nursery. That was, I think that was, that was one of the saddest moments that I experienced. Um, the nursery for newborns in front of my eyes was just revamped to create six or seven new beds in that area. So we had to shift our kids elsewhere, pregnant ladies had to go elsewhere. Our cancer patients had to go elsewhere, all surgeries were disbanded, um, and the entire hospital of eight floors essentially just was created. And, and I'm pretty impressed by um, what my hospital did to combat this, because this was done in front of our eyes, um, just to be able to... Um, and then when you have so many patients, you also need as many doctors and nursing staff. So um, Typically, COVID is taken care of by medicine physicians, which was my primary specialty. Um, They're taken care of by emergency physicians in the emergency room. And then when they get admitted, it's the medicine department that takes care of them. But we were getting overwhelmed by um, just the number of patients we were getting because we just didn't have enough manpower to do it anymore. Um, My co residents were 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 burning out and this is all literally just within a span of a week that you just saw this massive increase of not just the number of people. It was also just the intensity of what we were seeing Um, And it's it's I always try to tell people that most of the things that we were doing were not new. The virus is new, but we were, we were offering breathing support to people, right? So breathing support is not something new. We've done this in medicine for years. We know how to do this. The issue was resources. The issue was that instead of 10 people at a time, now you have 30 or 35 people at a time um, for any one single person. Um, to oversee, for example. So the issue became, I think the predominant issue was resources also, where you just didn't have, we just didn't have enough resources to support those many people all of a sudden. So what we were doing wasn't new. The machines we were, we were using, they weren't new. Right. But it was, our, 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 our thought process was not new. I mean, even though COVID was a new virus and we were seeing many different things, but many of the things we were doing, we always do it anyway. It was just this massive intensity of, of how a typical day started looking like um, with language barrier, um, with the fact that family members are not allowed all of a sudden. Um, so your patients are, you are the only person they can talk to or, or basically are, are relying on in the hospital because, you know, family members are always there to feed you in the hospital, otherwise to advocate for you. Um, Especially old people, especially elderly, when their children come around and, and they feed them and they, and they spend time with them, they automatically get better because because we are strangers for them, obviously um and now, on top of that, you're also wearing masks and you're wearing those hideous goggles and and you're wrapped up all together so they can't even see your face. you're there to save their life per se but but they're 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 frightened for their lives, they cannot see you um they can't even hear you properly. Because, because with, with the mass, even normal communication became so difficult and so challenging. We had to scream at everybody to make sure they were able to hear us. So even the simple process of holding someone's hand when I know there's nothing else I can do and he's dying in front of me just became so like, I don't know. I mean, I hope it worked. But for me, it was just so heartbreaking that I can't even hold someone's hand and 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 just offer that that moment of um, of solace to someone when I can't see my when I can't when they can't see my face when they can't hear me properly, um, their family is not around them. Um, so um, we're not. It's not like, it's not that we're not used to deaths. Doctors and nurses and healthcare staff. We we are used to seeing people die in the hospitals because you know that's part of what we do. But, but suddenly it wasn't just about deaths. It was about multiple deaths in a row. It was about like, I had never seen six deaths in one day, for example. Usually my, my frequency, the frequency of deaths is usually, let's say once in two weeks, you know, um, um, some are expected, some are not so expected. I've seen many unexpected deaths as well. Um, but the. Uh, and, and you do everything possible for them, but the frequency is usually in today's day and age, it's like, I would say once in two weeks. Now you're seeing six deaths in one day, um, and uh, in front of you, and that's just one person, right? So, so multiply that with with what is happening in the entire hospital. And, and every time someone needed um, the um, immediate rapid response for rescue, um, let's say their breathing was getting deteriorated or, or or whatever, or their heart suddenly stopped, announcements are made overhead in the entire hospital to alert people and to, and to um, gather help because um, we need people to perform chest compressions and to intubate people and uh, put them on ventilators and, and multiple nurses and respiratory therapists. So announcements are, and that's also common practice when, when a patient crashes, in any way announcements are made in the hospital to make sure that the right people get to hear where help is needed and they come right away within five minutes, 10 minutes. And now you're hearing these announcements like 15 times in a day. So even if your own patients are not immediately crushing in front of you, you can see that at one time, literally in one, I remember like within half an hour, I I heard three announcements just within 30 minutes, which means three people are dying right now um, in 30 minutes within 30 minutes, a span of 30 minutes. So, um, and most of them didn't survive. Um, for, for the most part, most of them didn't survive. So it was, it was just the magnanimity and just, just, just insane. Like just people just dropping dead, like flies. And, and, and for a long time, it, I, I also started questioning, um, if I was doing something wrong, because, um, and it was it was comforting to know that everybody else around me in other hospitals or other departments et etc, all were also going through the same thing for the most part as a doctor that 's the guilt you you 're living with um, Did I mess something up? Did he or she die because of something I could have done and didn 't do um, uh, because if it happens once, you can still sort of calm yourself down, but if it 's happening five or six times in a row and you and and like I said. Pre-COVID, my majority of my patients were like 70-plus. We always we saw younger ones as well, of course. We, we saw younger people too, but by and large, the majority of patients that we deal with are 70-plus, I would say, 65-plus. Now I'm suddenly seeing 40 p- people in their 40s dying in front of me, 50s dying in front of me, 60s dying in front of me, um, family members screaming on the phone, crying on the phone, Um so every day part of the job is also to obviously um, call family members and give them daily updates because they cannot, they were not able to visit any longer like they, they were able to before. Um, and many a times those phone calls were just about family members putting me on loudspeaker and just crying out loud together. Um, like they would just literally, like they would just say, can we put you on loudspeaker? And they would just cry. They would just cry. Um we would have video calls because they wanted to see their loved ones. And then there were times when they couldn't see them till their last breath. So I had to show them um, their face at the end to the family through video cameras. Um, And they can't see me and I can't hold their hands. And it's just, it was just so unsettling, Just, just the way everything turned around. And then so many people were dying that like, so first I didn't absorb the, 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 how enormous this was, but then the next day I come at 6 a.m. to start my shift and I see that there's a, there's a truck lined up outside my hospital and we're like, okay, what is this for? It turns out our morgue is running out of space for dead bodies. So they had to hire, my hospital had to hire a truck um, that has freezing capabilities to to keep dead bodies because we ran out of body bags. There were points where I was told that the hospital doesn't have body bags anymore. So we ran out of body bags. We ran out of space to keep the bodies. Um, so that's the first thing you're seeing when you're entering the hospital. There's a there's a body there's a truck for dead bodies um, standing there parked there outside for you. Um, so it was basically. So it was that, and then for the first time in my life, it was also my fear of dying myself. Oh. Um, in 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 the in the normal, I mean, it's it's not it's this was not the first infectious disease we've come across. Um, tuberculosis, for example, that's also uh, it's an airborne disease. You can you can catch it. You don't even need droplets for tuberculosis. Um, so I, I used to see TB patients many a times, there are quite a few TB patients in Brooklyn, actually. Mm. Um, so tuberculosis is an infectious disease. HIV is an infectious disease. Hepatitis is infectious disease. So it's not, it's not like this was the first time we were, we were dealing with patients who, um, with whom there was a possibility that we might also contract the disease from them. Um, it was just that tuberculosis and, and any other infectious disease, there was, there was just this trust in, in the preventive measures that were there in the hospital, that we are taking the right preventive measures to minimize our chance of getting it. And even if, um, even if we end up getting it from them, um, even if I end up getting a disease, if I end up contracting a disease from my patient, I had the trust that I will have access to the right treatment right away, because I know these are... Um, by and large, treatable, manageable diseases. Now, all of a sudden, when you don't know what's working for coronavirus, um, and all you're seeing is um, people dying in front of you, including people your own age, actually. Um, So all of a sudden, um, while there was this emotional turmoil of seeing um, other people dying, there was also this fear of myself getting infected. I, 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 I'm not exaggerating. I used to get morbid imaginations of uh, seeing myself on a ventilator. Mm. Um, and then the fear that I'm bringing that back home to my husband who didn't sign up for this. Um, he was living at home. He was working at home, 100%. He had absolutely no point of contact other than me. Um, we even... Um, we discussed if we should maybe stay away because a lot of doctors started doing that, um, especially those who had um, older parents at home or newborns at home. At that time, nobody knew how it's going to affect newborns. And there were so many doctors with newborns, including mothers of newborns actually. And they decided to stay away from their parents um, um, and away from their newborns. So that was also a conversation my husband and I had, if we should just separate for a while, because that's what I was hearing left, right and center. People were, they just, they just, rented another room and just lived there for an indefinite period of time but my husband and I at the end of the day were also of the opinion that we just don't know for how long this is going to last and for us just staying away because of this fear at the same time also did not feel sustainable we um I even I didn't think that I would be able to do I didn't I I was but I didn't want to be guilty either but then he was someone who you know he comforted me and he said you know this is i know that other people are doing this but i don't think we can do this so i we didn't separate but um but then i tried basically everything that is possible in in the power of a human being to disinfect myself as much as i could before i left the hospital um and just come home and and just There was a whole protocol that I followed for I think 40, 50 days at a stretch where I tried to disinfect myself as much as I could um, and then be available to see him. Um, So yeah, so it was was that plus the fear of yourself getting infected and then being a source of infecting someone else. Um, By and large, most people who get infected it's true that most of us will get mild symptoms. The issue was that at that point, working in, the, working at, working in a hospital that was really the hub of this pandemic, um, all I was seeing, I was not seeing the, the, the people with lighter symptoms. That's, so I had a, I had a mm-hmm. bias in my vision because, because those who had light symptoms, they weren't coming to the hospital. They were managing it at home at the hospital the the hundreds of patients i saw were all those who just couldn't handle it at home eventually ended up at the emergency and had to be admitted because they could not be sent back home and by that time most of them were in a position where they would they would either die right away or or die weeks to months later so so the yeah I know it was a bias because I was, that's all I was seeing, but, uh, and I didn't see the ones who were doing relatively okay or were um, able to control it at home. Um,
2: so
1: all I was seeing every day was people dying in front of me, left, right, and center, um, constantly questioning if this was something I was going wrong with, um, is there something else we can do for them? Um, am I responsible any, in any way for so many deaths? Is there something that I can do? Because that guilt was part of the process. And some very difficult decisions to make as well. Um, uh, for example, when, um, when, when people's breathing would become, when the breathing would become so bad that it started putting pressure on the heart,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, the heart at, at a point just stops beating because it's just not able to um, take that pressure on the breathing, basically, in, 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 um, in simple terms, for example. So people were, um, uh, they were getting cardiac arrest left, right, and center, and those were most, and, and they were getting cardiac arrest not because there was anything wrong with the heart, but mostly because of the respiratory oh. burden, their heart would just stop working because there was just so much burden of, um, of breathing on them. So there were multiple um calls for what we call um uh code three or code or CPR, basically chest compressions to um chest compressions that are meticulously done um to try and see if we can revive the heart, if we can fix the problem, if maybe if we can put attach them to a ventilator, improve their breathing, maybe the heart would revive. So and, and that's a very key procedure. Um, that works many a times and we're used to doing it all the time but the problem with a big problem with running codes and as a senior resident physician I often use I I was often the code leader and code leader is the person who basically um, steps back and takes charge of the entire process Um, like there's something going on right now there's an emergency we need to deal with it um, and I used to be the code leader giving directions to other people about what to do um, in that moment. So it's a very emotionally um, charged moment that you have to deal with. So as a code leader, my, I think my biggest challenge in those multiple codes that I, that I led um, in that period, one big challenge that was that would always make me feel guilty was that um, when you're performing those chest compressions, um, mm-hmm. Uh, you are also for someone who has the virus in his or her lungs, performing chest compressions basically means that you are amplifying the aerosolization of the virus because you're pressing it, you're pressing the chest, right? So the virus can come out of your, um, it can aerosolize through your mouth, through your nose. Mm -hmm. Um, so the biggest challenge was, um, this is someone who needs this, um, should I, cause normally we run these quotes for 35, 40 minutes. I've even run quotes for an hour. If it doesn't work, sometimes, if we feel we can still do something, we don't give up. We, we continuously do it for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I've run quotes for as long as an hour even, mm-hmm. but here the issue was that as a court leader, I'm asking young resident physicians, young doctors to perform these chest compressions, and increasing their exposure to this virus by multiple folds because while they're doing this to save that person, to try and save that person, they're also getting exposed to this virus during the process, not just them, everybody in the room Mm -hmm. is getting exposed massively. It's nothing compared to the exposure you will get on the street. You are actually initiating aerosolization of the virus and you're standing in front of them, your nose is right there, you're breathing that even if the mask is on. Um, so as a code leader, the biggest challenge would be to, was to drive that balance between trying to save this person who's already sick, but also not at the expense of those young doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and other healthcare workers in the room, young, healthy people who are trying to do that, should we do this or should I save these people? Um, um, can I afford to do this for an hour, like I used to before? If it's a if if a forty year old, forty five year old man codes otherwise, and I feel there is something that can be fixed, I would run that port for an hour
2: mm-hmm.
1: because I will give him that chance for as long as I possibly feel is is um, is uh, reasonable. Um beyond beyond certain reasons, if I feel there's no chance, we stop those codes and we say no. Even if this someone's 35, we know this is not going to work. So we just make that medical decision. But if I feel something can be can be fixed, we do it for as long as we possibly can. But here we I had to stop it after 15 minutes at times because, because my thought process was that this virus is so lethal. If he if his heart has stopped at this point the chances of reviving him are very minimal to be honest and and in the effort of doing that i am exposing five um five healthy doctors nurses respiratory therapists in the room so so when you stop that after 15 minutes your conscience also starts questioning you what if he would have revived if i did it for five more minutes right. so like how do you mark that line how do you, um, how do you say how much is enough for him, and how much is, like, how do you strike that balance between saving this person and protecting five other people who are still alive and 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 there to help you? So it's a very different. Um, so I think in, in a setting of a public health emergency, it's a very different mindset. I was reading that um, your your sense of ethics has to change in a public health crisis because in a public health crisis, your, your focus inevitably becomes saving the maximum number of people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, yeah, it was like an unannounced sort of thing where we, and it was, this happened unanimously everywhere that we didn't code them for as long as we would have done if virus was not a problem. Right. Um, and, and, the, and, the, and the impact that has on your conscience as a, as a, as a physician, um, the guilt that you carry with it outside, but you also know that you did it um, to prevent other people from dying like this. So, so I think that was a very challenging decision that I had to take. Um, it was just, I could go on and on. Like it's... Mm. Um,
0: um very weighted
1: very heavy it was just very very heavy and um that's all I saw for weeks on end that's all I saw that's all I did um and that's why I just wore scrubs for three months like I said (laughs) because nothing else mattered in both like nothing else mattered I was just um and I would all I would always question what is it that makes me get up every morning and, and still push myself to go. Like, why am I still doing this? What's, what's the, why am I doing this? Um, if I know um, I can get it like other people have, if I know I can die like other people have. Um, uh, it's true that most people were, you know, uh, they were elderly, comorbidities, whatever, but I didn't stop seeing people who were my age. I saw people who were my age. Um, And some of them were really, really sick. So even though I know the chances are very low for those people who were my age and on ventilators for weeks on end, for that person, it was a hundred percent thing. So I could have been that person too. Like, I know like this was against statistics, but the fear was rational, I think, because it was just, um,
0: you're still seeing that.
1: You're still seeing that. And also, um, the exposure of healthcare workers was also just enormous because, so many of the um, procedures or symptoms that we were encountering directly aerosolized the virus, so our exposure was several times higher than than uh, my exposure um, uh, if I'm walking on the street. Um, it's true that they had these like conflicting studies where they felt that um, the the percentage. Um, of getting it while at work is the same as um, getting it out in the community. There are a few conflicting studies that, that also say that. But in that moment when I know that I am, I am in front of people who are coughing, who are, um, um, who need chest compressions, um, who just got intubated, even when you put uh, the tube down in the throat to attach someone on the ventilator, that's a very heavily aerosolizing um, procedure. Um, then we were using these very strong nasal cannulas to improve oxygenation. Those nasal cannulas were also aerosolizing it everywhere. So the, the just that fear of of being surrounded by that exposure for 12 hours at a stretch, the, the shifts were 12 hours long, right? So not even 12, at times they were 14, 15 hours even, mm. um, the minimum 12 hours, uh yeah. So it was just, it was just an amalgamation of everything. Um, but some good things also happened. If I really reflect on, because that's how you rationalize things and that's how you survive and that's how you, right. um, and that's how you uh, move on. And that's how you um, make sense of it all. Some good things also happened and um, one really good thing that I felt through this crisis in the hospital, and this happened in every hospital of New York, mm-hmm. so it was it was a combined um, Effort. experience, was that um, because medicine doctors were no more, the number was no more sufficient to take care of the um, number of patients, um, all the other specialties were requested to completely halt whatever they were doing Um, Because nothing else was happening, right? No surgery was happening. Um, uh, Predominantly, like all the elective procedures, um, um, they were just not happening. So they were all recruited to take care of these patients. um, Something they had never done for years. Um, So for the first time, surgeons are taking care of pneumonias. um, Something that they were not... um, that they hadn't done for years, basically. Mm-hmm. So the way, the way my hospital tackled with it was that they um, employed someone from medicine in each of these areas where um, the medicine doctor would supervise um, the psychiatrists or the pediatricians or the gynecologists or um, the surgeons. They would supervise and then they would do it under that supervision. So I think in this way, because um, otherwise, um, you, 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 otherwise, in, in, an, in a hospital environment, you can expect a lot of silos between specialties because specialties work independently. Through this crisis, the entire hospital came together. Um, and, when I, and, and when I said this happened everywhere, we're talking about the same unity observed in multiple different hospitals of New York in, in the peak of this crisis. For a whole month or maybe, I think, four to six weeks, the entire hospital shut everything else. And everybody was just taking care of patients with COVID-19. So the specialties came together. The doctors, the nurses came together. Um, So I thought that that was very beautiful. that Everybody was doing, um, was was just working for one cause.
0: United effort.
1: And they did not care about whatever they were working. So I'm especially thankful to those specialties, actually, because um, even though we never signed up to to deal with COVID, COVID was at least, it was our specialty, like COVID is what comes to medicine, it comes to infectious diseases, it comes to emergency medicine. So nobody signed up for it, but at least, you know, um, we were there because it was our, it was our, it's, it's under our domain, but surgeons don't deal with that, gynecologists don't deal with that, psychiatrists, and they haven't done this for years, but they were still doing it. So I thought that was extremely beautiful the other thing um that i really really appreciate was that um for for the first two three weeks we were short on staff so so short on all kinds of especially nursing staff um so that was a nightmare but but with time you know it was it was a new thing for everybody so even even hospitals were not prepared for this right so um so it took them a while to figure out how to increase staffing and then lo and behold all of a sudden we had like these 400, 500 new nurses from all over the United States who, um, and I spoke to many of them, nobody really asked them to come and help in New York. It's not like they were sent by their hospitals, they volunteered. Um, they, were, they were telling me that they were feeling so guilty because um, during that crisis, um, um, many of the hospitals started elsewhere in other states, they started facing um, like patients just stopped coming right, because of the fear of catching the virus, um, so the nurses thought that they, their their workload had suddenly decreased, and they were feeling guilty that they weren 't doing much work anymore um, and their and their colleagues in New York are just, just going, are getting hammered, so they were actually feeling very guilty and they they volunteered, they signed up for organizations that were hiring travel nurses. And they came here to do this. And I thought that was, that was just beautiful because, because all of a sudden I'm working in a unit I've never worked before because like I'm saying, right. um, Medicine has specific units. So we were just used to our specific floors, our specific departments. Now suddenly I'm working on a new floor. I had never worked on the third floor, for example. Now suddenly I'm working on the third floor. Suddenly I'm working on the fourth floor. So I'm not used to the, um, the, the physical aspects of where I'm working. Number one. Uh, And I can't see anybody's faces because we're all masked up, gowned up. You can't even see people's eyes. Everybody's wearing goggles. Um, And now suddenly you also know that they are all from elsewhere. Uh, Like I, I once went around asking and they were like, like, got every single state was there. So I thought that was just so beautiful that they were all here for a single cause um, you plan, you couldn't see their faces you couldn't you couldn't talk to them properly, but you knew there was a connection because they were all doing the same thing. they were all here for the same purpose um, so I think that um, was just beautiful. I got to talk to so many people from different states um, uh, and just yeah I'm, I'm forever grateful to those people um, and they were um, taking care of everybody's food everybody's uh, did you drink enough? Do you want coffee? There were coffee rounds. So, you know, like by the third week, fourth week, we started seeing those things as well. Um, where we were going through some very difficult times, but the, um, but the unity is something that I think it, it sort of kept me, kept me strong that I'm not alone in this. We're not alone in this. And we're all doing something for the same purpose. So yeah. Um,
0: you got to see the word "human" uh, unity U N I T Y in the word "humanity."
1: In absolutely in front of me, and it was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable because, um, and you could see, you could sense that uh, their accents are different. So even though you can't see their faces, you can tell this nurse is not from New York. Yeah. you can tell. You can tell. Not from around her. here. You can tell by personality, accent, you know, that everybody knows there are are differences from state to state. I couldn't tell which state. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not yet um, uh, expert enough to determine that, but I knew this nurse is not from New York. Uh, And then I would go up to her and say, hey, are you visiting us? Are you here from somewhere else? And then she would go on and "Oh yes, I'm from South Dakota, I'm from North Carolina. So my goodness. And people from Maine, California, like all the way from the West Coast were here. It wasn't even just nearby states. And they said, of course, we were feeling so guilty. And then I asked them, hey, did you guys like, you know, like, uh, did your hospital send you here? They said, no, we were feeling so guilty. We signed up ourselves. That was the unanimous answer of all of them. It was amazing. Like they didn't care about their, they didn't care about their life they were also going back to older parents when whenever they were going back. Oh, yeah. and, and for those four to six weeks, they were living in like, um, you know, random housing, because housing and everything was completely a complete mess during that time. So I don't know how they were eating. I don't know how they were sleeping. I don't know where they were living. I mean, they had, um, I'm sure they had those, but it's not easy. Even if someone offers you a room to live in for six weeks, it's not easy to do that. Um, yeah. And, um, it wasn't all, it wasn't all floral either. They broke down too. I saw nurses breaking. I saw them breaking down in front of me, um, because just, it was just so much to take at any given time that I don't think I can even do justice talking about it. Um, um, so I saw people breaking down. I saw people looking out, but I also saw people looking out for each other. Um, and like one nurse saw that initially because I was wearing the mask um, continuously for several hours at a stretch, 12, 14 hours every day. Um, The mask has a wire here that goes up your nose and that's part of the good seal that it provides. So when you do that for 14 hours at a stretch, um, a week in a row basically, um, it started creating this pressure also on my nose that I wasn't really paying heed to in the beginning. I didn't really, think about cushioning or anything, I would just wear it and I would just forget about it. But then I would take it off and I would notice that it started to like, my skin was peeling, there was an ulcer forming here. Um, and one of those nurses saw that and she right away, she went somewhere to some utility room in some on the other floor and she got this thing from me and then she made me sit down and she said, no, take your mask off and then she created the whole thing. And then and she was a travel nurse, right? So everybody was look. She saw that my nose was hurting and my nose was red. And she went there and she got something. And then she made me sit down. And she, I still have a picture of that moment. It was beautiful. And I didn't be, no, oh, know, what are you doing? She didn't want oh, to sit here. And then she fixed the whole thing. Then she fixed the mask for me. Um, so yeah, everybody was looking out for each other because we were all going through the same things. And they all had... One nurse told me um, that she lost her father from COVID-19 four days ago in Jamaica and she couldn't go there. Um, oh. she, she couldn't get go there to see him. And I am amazed that, that this was her way of dealing with her grief um, that she decided to, she was a travel nurse from another state and she decided to come to our hospital to take care of patients with COVID-19 four days after her own father died in another country. And she wouldn't go there to see him. So yeah, you know these just these stories of resilience, strength, uh, the things people were doing, the kind of the the ways, basically everybody going out of their way for their patients, for themselves, for colleagues, for family members, the sacrifices, the compromises they were making. Um, as much as I don't ever want to live those days again, I also know that because I've lived through them. It has really um, um, it teaches you a lot, um, now that I've survived it, it teaches you a lot. It teaches you just just things that I will always I will never forget for years to come, actually, for generations to come. So
0: it's like you took a master class in a
1: yeah, yeah, master class and also just um, speaking of master class, a lot of things that we had to start doing was also. Um, like Most of our patients needed the ICU uh, because uh, ICU is a separate, um, it's a separate entity of, of different kind of care that patients are given. It's called critical care for a reason where the ratio of patient to nurses is different, resources are different. So whoever needs ICU level of care um, is always moved to the critical care unit because we know that they will get the kind of care that other units in the hospital are not designed to provide. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, so typically, now all of a sudden, like our medical ICU has 20 beds, for example, and all ICUs come. What I'm trying to say is that all of a sudden, even though they converted every single ICU, including the pediatric ICU, the children's ICU was also converted into COVID ICU, despite converting every single ICU in the hospital and doubling the capacity of each ICU also, Despite doing that, we were still getting so many patients who we knew needed ICU level of care, but there was no bed in the ICU anymore. So we, we started having like this whole waiting line of patients, um, number 16, number 17 on the ICU waiting list, where you know this patient needs the ICU, but the ICU is full. There's, how do you, they doubled their bed, they, they maximized the entire space, they did everything possible, converted, opened up a new ICU overnight, but there's only so much you can do. So um, I, I, I'm i connecting this to what you just said about overnight, learning things overnight. So now I was in a position where um, I had to run an ICU on a normal floor because there's just no space in an ICU. I know he needs ICU level of care, uh, but now I cannot send him there. Uh, there's no space. What do you do? Then you. So it was, it's just, so sometimes we joke that we got an overnight ICU training, something that I had never signed up for. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: we got an overnight ICU training because we started taking care of those critical needs um, on floors um, that were not designed to provide those things. So we learned to, even medically, clinically, we, we picked up a lot of things that we um, wouldn't have done because that's not part of our, that's not what my medical training was supposed to provide. Um, but we, yes, it was just overnight, like so many decisions that I was not, I was not used to making, but you pick up, you pick up, you gather the strength. I mean, you, you, you know how to learn, you know how to make decisions, you know, what factors to. Um, and then we had massive amount of help from everywhere in the hospital as well. So, um, um, so yeah, it was overnight everything. Like mm-hmm. you, we got everything overnight, basically.
0: Just the instant.
1: Uh, instant, it was, um,
0: it's yeah. Kind of, it's a cool feature that it's sort of like if a building broke down and then people around the country came together to rebuild the building. They're like, we're gonna do this. We're just showing up. I'm here from different areas yeah. and yeah. let's do yeah, this. Yeah. this yeah. is it the
1: was area. amazing, it was amazing the the when we hired new nurses, I thought that was just beautiful, like in the it was it was something that I don't think I'll ever see again, hopefully touch what, but it was whatever I saw, it was also yeah, I want to focus on the silver linings as well, and that truly was that truly was
0: one thing that comes to mind is that's a key moment in life we only have certain key moments what what would you say are some of the biggest let's say today the same shock that happened then occurred today it couldn't really happen I guess the same way now but uh, what what different position are hospitals in today than they were in three months ago in relation to that virus like let's say today just ramped up shockingly what kind of preparation would be there
1: honestly I'm not sure if, if hospitals are ready for a second wave oh. like that. I'm not sure um, They will definitely be better ready than they were before. Now Mm -hmm. we know where to get, um, first of all, now we have more research, more information about this virus than we had before that. Now Mm -hmm. we have better protocols. That means that that makes a world of a difference. Um, Now we have better protocols about what to do. Um, what to take care of? What medications work? What didn't work? For example, in the beginning, we were giving hydroxychloroquine, right? Um, because we didn't have enough. Um, it was it was thought that it would work, so we were trying whatever we thought would work. But now we know it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So it, we fairly know that it doesn't work. So um, so there have been some shifts in. Um, even though we're still not sure about many things, um, we still don't have um, an answer. To how to treat this accurately, we still have a f- reasonable idea about how to go about it, um, at least better than where we were before. So the medical, the clinical protocols, those were, more, were slightly more confident than we were before, for example. Um, and then I guess in terms of resources, now um, we know how to get ventilators, we know how to get, um, I'm sure I, I don't know what happened to the extra ventilators at my hospital, um, hired during the crisis. I'm sure they've kept them. I don't know what the, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure they know how to access them again. Mm-hmm. Um, if something along those lines happens again. Um, so in terms of resources, um, even though, uh, I'm not exactly sure, um, what plans they have, um, I'm pretty sure they have a sense of where to go to obtain what because um we we figured what we needed more. Um we figured how to hire more staff, we figured how to get more protective equipment for our um healthcare workers, um we figured how to um how to manage family members and their grief and, and their concerns. Um so it'll be more streamlined, uh, definitely, if, God forbid, if this has to occur again. Um, but, oh my God, I don't want that to
2: happen. Right. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I'm sure we have a fair idea, uh, at least, um, and we have some more confidence in protocols as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still so much. The truth is that there's still so much unknown, especially about... Um the complications of this virus, the complications of the immune system, and um and what arsenal do we have against it there's still so much unknown and still so much is being studied um, that we will still be in many um uh, we will still have to be in situations that we would feel ambiguous about, but 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 yeah I we have a better sense of what to try, what to not try, what to give, what to not give, where to get it from. Cause like simple things like, you know, like we knew some medications were, but those medications were not um, sufficiently available in the market. So even though I wanted to try something, I just couldn't get it for my patients. I didn't have an answer to the, for the family members when they would ask me, what about that? I said, I know I, I would have tried it if I had it. I can't get it so that's like those were challenges we met in the first week or ten days, but then slowly we figured that the productions that the supply market started changing. We started getting those medications um, um, Then first, some medications were just part of some um, protocols um, for clinical trials. Now those medications are more readily available um, even outside. Um, those clinical trials like even if you're not enrolled in those clinical trials you can still get some medications like that but things have changed things have changed you have more options um, and you just yeah are just better versed well versed in how to manage it but there's still so much unknown that um, yeah I don't feel conf- I mean I will do it if I have to but I still don't feel confident about it Mm-hmm. Uh, because we, there's still a long, long way to go. And like any other um, um, epidemic never seen before, it, It's the timeline is pretty much the same. It goes on for years until right. you figure out what happens. Because people like um, the doctors from the older generations, they keep giving me the example of HIV. When HIV was first discovered, sure. Um, this was just 40, 50 years ago, right? And they, they saw that. They saw the HIV epidemic. Nobody knew anything about it because HIV is also a crazy virus. It's a crazy, crazy virus. Um, the only um, good thing about HIV is that it's not so readily spread through, um, through respiratory droplets. Um, so that was the only good thing, um, to be able to contain, but HIV can cause so many crazy things in your body. When it was first discovered, nobody knew anything about it. Um, and people, and, and, and they they were recalling actually, many of my, um, older physicians were recalling how they saw young men were, um, um, somehow more affected. They were saying, and just dying left, right, and center. And, and and HIV was predominantly affecting young people. Right. So Mm -hmm. Um, young people dying left, right, and center. So, But now we have um, HIV is treatable. It's no more a stigma. Um, You can have HIV and you can not infect anybody else. Um, So there's just so much known about it. So it's not the first time that this world is seeing um, an outbreak. It's not the first time. We've seen similar outbreaks multiple times. We fight through them. We see deaths, bad things happen. And those who survive learn more, study more, research more, and then you, you come up with solutions. So we're just part of that initial phase where, where it's chaos, everybody's confused. One day you hear one thing, the other day you hear another thing. Even doctors are confused, honestly. Um, one day something, you think something works, you, the, you figure out, no, it doesn't work, what to try, what not to try, wear a mask, not wear a mask. Um, is, it, is, is it droplet, is it airborne? There's still so many conflicting answers, to be honest. Um, But we are, um, uh, there are lots of studies that have taken place. We have a fair idea about community transmission, asymptomatic transmission. Um, We have a fair idea about attack rate in family members if one person gets it. Because that was also very interesting. I always like, um, and now we know that this is exactly what attack rate is, um, that one person would get infected and within the same household among people living closely not everybody would get positive um and even those who did not everybody mounted the same symptoms so how is that possible they're all five people living in the same apartment all um exposed to that person who got it from somewhere Mm -hmm. but they but not all five got it and those who got it did not mount the same symptoms that this person did So it's, it's fascinating. Like, why does that happen? Even though we're living in the same, in the same proximity, why did that happen? Um, So, yeah, so we know that that's exactly how uh, it's probability. This is what statistics are, that um, it's, it's perfectly expected that this, uh, that all the family members will not get
2: infected, for example.
1: So, yeah, so we are definitely better prepared, but it's still, we still have so much unknown that um, to this day, prevention is the key. When, when there's so much unknown, um, prevention is really what we should be focusing on.
0: Um, that makes sense.
1: But again, at the same time, I was just reading another um, perspective where we know prevention is the key and everybody knows that. But even then, not everybody will wear a mask. And a mask is like a simple thing, right? It's like a simple mask, you put it on. Um, Surgical masks usually are breathable. So, why is it that um, people will still not wear it? Um, And I was reading that rather than shaming them, and it was a very good perspective, rather than um, because. Because you can't solve these public health issues by shaming people who choose not to do what you think should be done. Um, uh, Because if you shame them, you're just alienating them even more. Um, Rather than shaming them, just getting down to where they are and understanding why they're not wearing it. Um, Also knowing that human beings are not perfect and, and no matter how much you talk about um, the severity of this crisis um, and no matter how much they know it and they've heard about it everybody knows the number of deaths in the United States um, it's pretty fascinating that even then they won't wear it um, so it's so I think at the end of the day the the conclusion really is that as long as most people wear it um, we will still be able to contain it in a manner that doesn't overwhelm our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, because we know that's exactly what, this is human psychology, we can see it all around. Everybody knows the number of deaths in the United States. Um, it's nothing new, but they would still not wear it. So as long as I think most of us are wearing it um, and not shaming those who are not wearing it, uh, because shaming will not serve any purpose. They're not gonna wear it because if you shame them. Um, it's it's not the solution. It never was. It's never been, um, mm-hmm. because people were recalling the HIV epidemic also, and they were recalling that shaming people for not wearing condoms also never worked. It mm-hmm. never worked. Um, right. If if anything worked actually, um, it was pretty interesting that if anything they felt worked was, for example. Um, uh, was increasing the availability of condoms. Um, in fact, something very interesting, I read that um, increasing the availability of condoms um, at bars actually, um, that sort of, so, so similarly, if you were to uh, make mass more available outside grocery stores um, and freely, these should be free, right? Um, outside bus stops, outside subway stations.
0: Lowering um, the friction
1: just lower in the friction rather than shaming them Mm -hmm. because shaming has never worked um and as much as as because you may think this is something so simple but that's exactly what human beings are complicated you may think this is simple and it may be simple but that person doesn't think it's simple and they still don't want to do it um they could have a million arguments against it um despite knowing how many people have died in the united states um so yeah just trying to strike that common balance and common ground and and reaching a point where we are able to um just it's never going to be zero it's coronavirus is here to stay at least till we have a vaccine for it Mm -hmm. so at least till then um just controlling it enough so that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed by it um and then by that time, also giving some more time to um, figuring out what medications work, what tips and tricks work, um, what vaccines work, etc. So, yeah.
0: You just okay. made me, I have a friend, Felipe, he's a phys- physician's assistant and he treats HIV patients. He's done mm-hmm. it for about 15 years. And so a few of the things you just mentioned are true, like his category of work. Is kind of put on the back burner for the time being because obviously there's a bigger focus on other also that was the previous or a past epidemic of sorts and so that's shown a way that it starts out it's a shock factor you don't shame people you work ways to manage the system and then it doesn't over time
1: doesn't as much as that's your natural instinct sometimes frankly it's, it's also my instinct Because I'm like, it's so simple, why are you not wearing it? But it's easier to do that and and more challenging to just understand that that's how humans work. And you can never get 100% of the people to do something as simple as wearing a mask that is worth a few cents. Mm -hmm. It's just not, it's just, you can see it. It just doesn't work. Um, So meeting them where they are, um, as someone wrote it very beautifully, is I think the way to go to just make it more available, just, yeah, make it more available where it matters. So grocery stores, you're not, you're not shutting them down, right? So um, so they're a big hub for people to gather. So make them available outside grocery stores, make them available outside bus stops, make them available outside subway stations, make them available in public areas. Um, I was I was quite happy to see that even in these protests, um, there were free mass available for everybody, so it was a good thing, right? Uh, people mm-hmm. wanted to protest um, and you couldn't stop them from protesting um, uh, in the name of a new pandemic um, when they were talking about a pandemic that's been going on for years. So they had their own argument, right? They were, mm-hmm. um, they were worried about the the other pandemic that's been going on unchecked for years. So nobody could stop them from coming out and protest, but I could see that um, people were distributing free masks. Um, so yes, I guess just um, focusing on those things. Um, and yeah, just, just, just learning to live with it for, for some time, I guess.
0: Mary from Scotland, who you had met previously just today, for a variety of her family and friends had made a bunch of masks of different styles and whatnot. Uh, Oh
1: yeah, (laughs) I got a few, I got a few matching masks as well that go with my outfits because (laughs) I'm like, it's wearing the surgical mask is so boring. (laughs) I have to make this more sustainable, more fun. Uh Um, So even for myself, I got like a few masks that go with like different friends that would just go with different outfits of mine because I'm like, okay, you know, I know this has to stay. This is here to stay, this is not going anywhere might as well make it more sustainable, something that I might just look forward to. Who knows, this could become the new fashion statement. Uh, (laughs) uh, So yeah, I'm all for um, different masks with different designs that go with different. (laughs) I'm all for them, yeah. Um, Because anything that makes people want to wear them, yeah, rather than shaming them for not wearing them. Mm-hmm. is I think, really the way to go because you can shaming will not will not work it will never work it never has it never will
0: mm-hmm. now one thing that came to mind also what are the biggest shifts in you from three months ago to now or growth or different life perspective is there any change you can see right now sometimes it's not as clear when it's just happened but mm-hmm. do you see any things where like if you met the you from three months ago you'd say Here's a couple of things you'll pick up on. It might be too soon for me.
1: No, it's, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm still processing it. I'm still mm-hmm. processing what it means for me um, at present time, what it means for me, for my future, what it means to, um, like, how, how has it really impacted me? Um, for one, it's just something that, it's corny, but it's just that. but it's also true. Um, it's, it's just the beauty of human compassion. It's a very corny It's not corny. Answer.
0: It's super cool um, on this show.
1: It's not creative at all, um, but it's just this value of human compassion is just this, because what I noticed from time to time was that even though I could not save their family member, um, all I got from family members was gratitude. That was because they knew I couldn't save them, but through my phone calls, through my updates, through different ways of helping them, um, they knew that I was trying my best. And they knew that I was trying my best while risking my own life, right? So, so, and which I was, that's exactly what I was doing. I was trying my level best, whatever was possible in my powers. And, the, and sometimes I was shocked that they're not getting angry. They're not getting frustrated. Um, all they had to say was thank you. Um, even though they were there to collect the dead body, all they had to say was thank you. And I thought that was, that was remarkable because this is, this is the value of human compassion. It sort of fades down the negativity. Like they were, I don't, it, 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 it will never replace what they've lost, but they, but they were left with the realization that there was someone who cared for their loved one in an environment where they were not allowed to be there and in, in, in um, be there be present in the same room, they knew there was someone who was advocating for their family members. They knew there was someone who was um, taking care of their needs. Um, like sometimes I would ask them for their loved ones' favorite music, so even though they were on a ventilator, you know, I would play them on the side who knows whether or not they listen, but I said, I don't know, something, whatever, maybe something works or, or taking care of their different um, requests. Someone wanted to do something, someone wanted to do something. They wanted me to go and you know perform some religious ritual. Even if that ritual was not from the religion I come from, I did it. I said, yeah, you know, whatever works for them, whatever makes them feel better, whatever. So I just felt that if nothing worked, I hope, and I got the feeling that it did, the compassion worked. And it's something, I think it's something extremely under acknowledged. Um, Nobody writes papers on them. Nobody performs clinical trials on them. But if you talk about what I thought worked, that worked. Um, I couldn't save them. They died horrible deaths, Um, but it left their family members with the realization that they died, but they died at the hands of some, of people who truly cared for them. Um, And that is something that just keeps me going. And it's just something that I don't ever want to stop doing or being or thinking. Like that is my like single most um, like guiding path. Anything that is, um, yeah. So it's it's compassion. I'm definitely much stronger than I was. I've always been very strong and level headed.
0: We all know this over here, just I want to point that out. I,
1: I know that I've always been very strong. I know that I'm very um like it's I'll s i will I know it's so I'll say it. I am I'm I am strong. Like
0: You're strong everybody.
1: Ah. Uh, <laughs> but but this was like some crazy level of strength right. that I had to achieve to get through it. And um, I was almost surprised that I, I dealt with it well. I was, I was actually surprised that I dealt with it well. Um, I, uh, so, I mean, credit where credit is due. Um, I do think that I did um, in terms of my strength, my, my, my resolve, knowing why I'm doing what I'm doing and and how to just um yeah but when i had to when i had to vent because that's another thing that i've learned um i know i'm strong but i'm not strong every day i'm not strong every moment i've cried a number of times i've vented i've i've used many people as my outlet i've spoken to my therapist a number of times um there are different things i've, I've written about it um, in my own personal diary for example so when I needed to vent, when I needed to cry um, I also did that so just the realization that you're not invincible it's just because I mean healthcare heroes also cry um, healthcare heroes are also afraid of their own lives they're also afraid of their families' lives mm-hmm. um, they break down they feel helpless, they feel powerless. And I went through all those emotions. So, um, so while I do think I dealt with it very strongly, I had my moments and I didn't guard those moments. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's something that, because um, too often I come across people who, um, or at least that's a perception I get, I don't know, just like, just guarding their weaknesses. <laughs> Um, I understand that not everybody is, you know, um, uh, not everybody feels comfortable in every environment, but if you're going through something as difficult as this, um, while already being enrolled in a program as challenging and, and difficult as uh, medical training and residency, it's, it's already something that that just grates you in completely. And then on top of that, you have this whole three months, two, three months off this, this crisis, squeezing the last drop of blood that you have left, um, you can't pretend that it's not affecting you. So if it's, if it's something affecting you, I, what I, what I stand for is that I'm going to speak about it. Um, even if those around me um, are not speaking about it as much as I would have liked to, for example, mm-hmm. I will speak about it because um, because there will always be someone who, who will hear you and, um, and feel that he or she isn't alone. So I don't stop talking about it. I don't stop talking about the physical or mental turmoil it had on me, the emotional turmoil it had on me. I don't stop acknowledging that I'm still dealing with it, that I will um, still be demonstrating some signs of not being able, not having processed what I went through it's going to be a long journey for me to really make sense of exactly what happened. Um, so, so yeah, so just knowing that I'm strong, but also knowing that um, the future me, like you asked about the future me, right? The future me will not stop, will not be silent about anything she feels uncomfortable about. Um, even if because for far too often you don't do that because you feel like those around you are not doing that also. So, um, you know, it sort of deters you, but then no,
0: no, <laughs>
1: but if it makes you uncomfortable, know that you're not going to be alone. So if nothing works, there will be someone who will be there to, um, to who hears you and feels he or she is not alone. So you have to talk about what you're going through. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, definitely something that the future me will reflect on based on, um, yeah, so compassion, recognizing that I'm strong, but also recognizing that I have these weaknesses. Um, And maybe, you know, I will say something or do something or feel something um, that is a reflection of what I went through um because i'm still processing it, right it takes years for people to even make sense of what they just went through one single event like of a few seconds can sometimes give you trauma for life this was like this was like boluses of trauma every single day <laughs> for weeks right um so it's um yeah so it's a package it's a yeah so and it's and it's just going to take as long to 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 heal so,
0: yeah. So, One, That makes sense.
1: Yeah.
0: One thing that comes to mind, I would like to bring this up because it's key. You mentioned invincibility. We're not invincible, right? We have this short time on earth. I always like to point this out to people. We have a little little blip on earth and then off we go. So why are we not doing our thing? Yeah. We have to do our thing. It's almost like I, I see people not doing their thing and it's like they passed away before they even passed away. Like what are we, what's absolutely, the point?
1: Absolutely. I am most afraid exactly. I am always afraid of dying before dying. Like, you stop living before you actually stop living. Um, (laughs) That's, uh, yeah. And the other thing that, um, um, I know it sounds morbid, but.
0: uh, Nope.
1: Okay, good. Because the other thing that I really realized, um, we were in the middle of an epidemic. I know it's not a true reflection of life in general, because we were in some unusual circumstances. But as a physician, there's something that I really want to advocate for, and I will always do that, is acknowledge your mortality, whether it's COVID or a traffic accident or some lethal disease or whatever. Acknowledge your mortality. And it's it's a very heavy, morbid topic, but um, most of us should have, a, like it's, sure i'm too young about i'm too young for thinking about this but like we should have some sort of like everybody should have advanced directives if not us we should we should have we should definitely speak to our family members about it um our grandparents about it um advanced directives are basically just um or a living will or or something where you where you imagine those times when that time hasn't really occurred and you are in a position to think about it um, and make those crucial decisions about how you want your, how you would want your life to end if something like that were to happen. Um, because I think the there's a, the one big thing that you know that lacks in society at large, whether it's um, this country or any other country, is that um, they we we don't like talking about death. We don't like talking about mortality, and um, and mortality is basically there's nothing more true than mortality. Yeah. So we run away from talking about these things, right because it's it's nobody wants to talk about it. Um, and we run away till the end, and we run away thinking it's too soon until it's too late so um, and i'm and granted my my vision is coming from a very biased scope of working in an environment where most people who come to see me are 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 in that in our in a scenario where you know. Are in those unusual circumstances where they're battling with different diseases or or end of life issues. I'm sure I understand if somebody thinks my vision is very very narrow here because I'm because I'm because I mostly see people um, who are like that. But but I I see enough to just just want to make conversations about mortality normal, and and just prepare for things um, in a. Because far too often I see people who are, are literally asked about like end of life topics when they're not ready to talk about it. And it's like, and, and things are going downhill in that moment. So that's not, that's not the time to think about those things.
0: Don't um, do it when you're calm.
1: The time is when you're calm. The time is when you're home. The time is when you're surrounded by family members where you can have one discussion after another, after another, after another and have a better sense of how you envision your end of life. So this is, nobody talks about it. But, um, and, and even though the epidemic is something unusual and it doesn't happen every day, you know, you die, people die. And it's something that um, needs to be talked about more often. It's something that needs to be um, thought about. We have to prepare for um, those possibilities. Um, including wills and advanced directives that also guide doctors in the hospital to do things as you would have liked in a situation um, where you are no more able to make those decisions yourself. Um, so we always feel it's too early until it's too late and um, again not shaming anybody um, I haven't I don't have advanced directives per se myself but it's just something that, the conversations should, should, should be normalized. Um, why do we fear it when there's nothing as true as, as death is? So, yeah. So that's also like a big takeaway that you feel like, you know, like this epidemic, right? Like I saw 45-year-olds dying in front of me. Had they thought about this? No, they hadn't. But it happened. Um, it happened. And I, and we made decisions when they were not able to make their decisions. And I had no idea what he or she would have wanted if they were able to make that decision at that time. I only reflected what the families wanted, right? Because I didn't know what they wanted. And the families didn't, families, families, basically, they just, they try their best to, um, knowing that person best, they try their best to make decisions that are in line with someone's View vision principles about how they want things to be, um, what they would have wanted, what they wouldn't have wanted um, but um, yeah, that's why it's just important to and, I'll, I'll, and and i'll work on this more as i um, uh, as I get into this career more i'll definitely it's definitely one of my uh, like top projects in my head that like we need to normalize this more.
0: Yes, I've noticed a lot of issues in life that I notice that might bug me is because people are avoiding it and then living through the day in basically what I would call a dead state. It's kind of a waste of their existence. Somebody I know who's been on the show actually before, but she's 33 and had uh, like a stroke, series of kind of minor strokes because of Moya Moya, this condition. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And uh, she didn't really plan on that at probably 32, right?
1: Did she plan that? No, she didn't, exactly.
0: So there's a bit of like,
1: Happens. It it's happens. gonna show
0: up. It's gonna show up.
1: Happens. I saw. Yeah. I saw COVID-related strokes in 32, 33-year-olds. Um, did that 32-year-old think about this? No, he didn't. Right. Uh, had never thought? But it happened, right? It happened. Um, so, it and it's and it's very difficult to make those decisions. Those decisions when 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 the crap is happening in real time.
2: Mm-hmm. It,
1: because you're emotionally charged, family is emotionally charged. um, Your thought process is hindered because of what you're going through. Um, So there's some things that, um, and especially, especially, even if like, fine, healthy people who have nothing going on, sure. Even if you want to delay it for later on, especially those who already have underlying conditions, um, and especially those who are fifty and above, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, especially those who are already um, uh, battling with some sort of condition, that is like a no-brainer. Those people have to must be thinking about these things, and and doctors should be talking to them about this. Um, because if you don't talk about it, like I said, we feel it's too early until when it's too late. And I've seen countless examples of, um, and they're very heartbreaking because um, you, because I always question what would he have thought or asked me to do if he was in a position to make this decision right now. The problem is now he can't, so now everybody is making decisions on his behalf, right? So then you work through the law and you um, and you um, speak to. The spouse or the children or the parents who are the you know next of kin and everything there's a whole ladder that you follow
0: it's not exactly um, the same
1: but like you know like i often wonder we're making this decision but if this person was able to feel what's happening to him or her right now and was able to voice his or her opinion would he have still wanted to do the same thing right um, um, and i I encounter this far too often and it, and it and it leaves you with some sort of guilt as well because because what works for you doesn 't necessarily work for someone else, so everybody is entitled to their own judgment and assessment of how they want things to be when they 're not able to make and it 's not even just death you this could be a temporary situ- situation right mm-hmm. uh, that temporarily you 're not able to make your decisions um and then later on you recover and you get back to your um, so in that temporary moment, um, just some things to understand and, and, um, know, know what happens in the hospital. I think that's the big thing that I always notice is that people don't know. Um, and it's, um, and it's, 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 not about why they don't know that it's just about the general system that w- what should you expect and what should you know about how things go, mm-hmm. um, when someone is admitted in the hospital with a very serious critical condition. Um, I have come across people who need a ventilator like right now, and this is pre-COVID, right? I, I need to put you on a ventilator and he doesn't know what a ventilator is. So then like, you know, so to, so to even be, to even know whether or not he wants it, I have to first explain what it means what are the chances of him coming out of it? What happens if he doesn't come out of it? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not something. And most of these people are, are 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 patients who are dealing with these diseases for quite a long period of time. It's not like something has happened out of the blue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so so what is it? So why is it that they're still that right in the moment when they need a ventilator? Um, my the first step that we have to take is also to ex- first explain what it is to even ask if they want it. Mm-hmm. Some people learn about it and they like, "Hey, no, <laughs> let me. Do I don't want to be on a ventilator like that." Because right. don't know what it is, right? Like common, common. It's not common knowledge. How does a ventilator look? What happens? What's the chance that you will come out of it? What's the chance that you won't come out of it? What happens when they don't come out of it? Right. What next? What to expect? Because it's like a whole thing, and then. And then, um, so I often fight with that guilt also. What if I'm doing this right now, which I feel is in his best interest, right. he wouldn't have wanted it if he knew what was to come, right? So, um, so these questions should be, um, yeah, these discussions should be um, more ubiquitous than they are in clinics, in living rooms, on dining tables. Um, just being prepared for things that we know will come. Mm-hmm. So why run away from it and then, um, and then regret things
0: later? I don't support that kind of running. Mm-hmm. One kind of, I guess, a closing remark that came to mind is that I always talk about leadership and the importance of that. Uh, there's very few leaders and then those people are key. If you take them away, things change. Uh, individual at your hospital, I looked it up too, and is no longer here because of in relation to the virus. How I was does that
1: about to mention him actually say again he was I was about to mention him
0: oh now how does that impact how did that impact people? How what was the feel after that
1: the yeah he i I couldn't have had a conversation on this crisis without mentioning Dr. drgamhols he was he was the chairman of my department actually, so he was the chairman of the department of medicine he he was not just a leader, he was not just the chairman of the department, he was an exemplary, like we used to call him encyclopedia clinician, he was an exemplary clinician, physician, teacher, like the way he would teach us, nobody else ever did that, um, an exemplary human being, he was the chairman and his, and his office's door would always remain open for any of us to barge in discuss our issues with him whether it was about our patients or about our future um, or about some research so he was just someone and he was so invested in medicine and at the same time he knew like three four different languages he had learned how to fly a plane he um, um, he loved his food he loved his wine Um, he was a great husband. He was a wonderful father, a wonderful grandfather. So he was just, and everybody in New York knows him. He's, he's worked in multiple healthcare systems. Um, Even, even outside New York, actually, like he's a very well known name. So he, he was just, I was just so blessed that I got, I'm actually the last graduating class that he got to see. Um, And I was. And I was blessed to be under his, um, uh, under him for three years. Like I, I, I'm the last, per, I'm the last class. Yeah, I'm from the last class that he's going to be overseeing. Um, and and he was seventy plus, and we all knew. So did he, that coming to the hospital during the crisis at this age is full of risks. He knew that. Um, But at the same time, what I deduce from the kind of person he was is also that um, he was just not that sort of a person who would expect his residents, his trainees, who he actually called colleagues all the time. He called us colleagues. Um, He was also the kind of person who never expected his colleagues to do what he wasn't doing himself. Oh. And, he, I, and, and he didn't care about his age. Um, he knew what risk he was getting exposed to, but till his last breath, he never saw patients directly because he was in a leadership capacity. He, um, he wasn't a clinician any longer, but till his last breathing moment, he continued to teach us because that was one of his primary um, one of the activities he was always very passionate about teaching us teaching us teaching us and he was a he was a lung specialist himself he was a pulmonary critical care so this was like his his jam the whole coronavirus epidemic was like his thing so till the last day he was teaching us everything about covid he was phenomenal in reading x-rays and ct scans and he would spot things that even radiologists after extensive training they were not able to spot that he was able to spot, even though radiology is not his niche, mm-hmm. but that's just how brilliant he was. And my biggest takeaway from his death is that it was basically, it was the biggest blow of this crisis. It was like, everything started to settle down a little bit and then boom, our own chairman, who we loved so much. Um, I always saw a grandfather in him. Um, he dies of covid um the The biggest takeaway I have is that he died, but he's left his legacy of his principles and values. He worked till the last day um, he worked in the capacity of a leader we needed more ventilators he got them we needed more. Oxygen machines, he got them. We needed more nursing staff, he got them. Because he was the chair of the department, right? So he was part of the leadership of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, Till the last day he was doing that. And at the same time, he didn't stop teaching us. So twice a week, we would always gather in pre-COVID times. It was our routine as part of our schedule pre-COVID that we would gather in groups of um, 20, 25 people twice a week where he would. Teachers extensively for an an entire hour, so now those teaching sessions were not possible anymore. But he didn't stop teaching us. Um, He started going around from team to team, um, gathering smaller groups like two, three people at a time, distanced, wearing masks, etc. But continuing to teach us, continuing to show us how to appreciate the CT scans and the X-rays, and predominantly focusing on COVID, obviously. Mm -hmm. So just constantly teaching and basically working till the last day till the day he gets a fever. Um, and everybody around him pushed him home because they're like, what are you doing? You need to be home. And he's like, Oh my God, I have a fever today. I, I learned that he, he discovered that fever at work. Um, and then they pushed him home and they said, you need to be home. And then within a week, he exa- his condition exacerbated so much that he had to be in the medical ICU. And then a month later he died. So, um, it was he was a backbone of the of the entire program. He was someone we looked forward to um, seeing. Always had a smile on his face, um, and and I cried when he died. I cried for like two days straight. Actually, I bawled like a baby the next morning. Actually, um, because that's I just couldn't believe it. Like, what are the odds that of that the chairman of one of the biggest departments affected by COVID nineteen dies? Um, of COVID-19, and I, my guess is that he was exposed at work. Um, um, so it was a huge blow for all of us. Um, but what what stays with us, again, sticking to the, um, holding on to things that help us move forward are um, trying our level best to be his torchbearer, to, to continue living for the, values and the principles that he lived for till this till his last day basically Um, in fact even when he was in the icu up till the point up till before the point he was on a ventilator Mm -hmm. he was teaching even when he was in the icu so he was teaching like online even when he was in the icu on the high flow nasal cannula Um, and things only stopped when he was finally on a ventilator and he had to be sedated um, so that man was trying to work in his capacity till the last day, basically. Um, and that's like, where do you see that? Um, Full force. So, yeah. So, so I was, I, I'm, I'm blessed that I saw that, that I, that I saw his example, um, that I was inspired by his example um, every day for three years. And, um, and after processing his death a little bit, even though I haven't processed it fully, um, the only thing that keeps me going, um, is the fact that if I keep his values, his philosophy, his philanthropy, his, his principles, his passion for medicine, for not just for medicine, for helping people in ways that you wouldn't even imagine, um, and and not an ounce of pride for anything he's done all his life. I think that's like, you know, like he, um, even when he would like tell us the, um, even when he would teach us or or tell us things we, we weren't able to think, for example, in in, in brainstorming, um, even when he would come up with like obscure diagnosis, it was never to like show off his knowledge. It was always done in a manner where, He was giving us some gift that today we learned this from him. This was our companionship with him, Um, and I think I'm gonna keep his picture on my work desk. Actually, um, I'm gonna get a desk. Uh, I'm starting a new job um, in July, so I've already thought of the fact that I'm gonna keep a picture, his picture, on my work desk just to keep reminding myself of. And always thinking, of, uh, thinking about things from his perspective, what would he have done um, if he were in this position? Because it's just, um, yeah, we lost a legend basically. And if, if it were not for COVID, he would have lived for easily a decade more. So, but um, yeah, just, just a man full of life, full of exceptional abilities um and not an ounce of pride for anything so i think that's the biggest thing like you will find learned people you will find um um people who have achieved a lot you will find people who have taken multiple leadership opportunities um those are not hard to find you will find those you know exemplary people all the time but all of that while keeping your door open never wanting any appointment um always a smile on his face, not an ounce of pride for anything he's done ever. Um, I think his, the way he was approachable, even with an age difference of what, 40 years, 50 years from all of us. And always addressing us as colleagues, every single email of his addressed us as colleagues, not residents, not trainees, nothing He was 40, 50 years apart. Right. And he would call us colleagues. So yeah, so there's he died, but his values can remain immortal if we carry them forward, and then and then after us, when our descendants carry them forward. So and that's how you keep him alive and really bear his torch. So yeah, it was um, it was it was quite a blow. After all of this, things had begun to settle down, and and everybody thought we were feeling better, but we were not feeling better because even though. Um, prices wise, the hospitals had started seeing some light. We knew he was in the ICU and he was not doing well. And we knew we had a hunch. We all had a hunch that he's not going to make it because you know, um, when 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 things go certain, when they go down the hill and and you you understand what's going on, you have a sense of whether this person will make it or not. I knew he will not make it, um, but. Um, Yeah. So that was another blow, actually. But um, yeah, so just trying to um, handle it as best as we can, honestly.
0: Makes sense. It's almost like it would be written into a story such that there's a decline, it's improving, Ah. but there's this last thing. And I hope this works out because that would mean it was like all good across the board.
1: And ask me, hey, so things might be better now. Um, how's the hospital census now, you know, COVID has come down and it's true. Things had become better. Um, census had come down and and we had started seeing light at work. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we all had that, all of us who, whoever loved him, whose life he had touched in one way or another. We all had just that, that lump in our throat that I know things are better, but he, he's in the ICU. He's still in the ICU. It's been a month. Um, and it's, it's not going well. We knew that. Um, but for as long as he's alive, we were still holding on to things, obviously. Um, until one day, he wasn't. So, yeah.
0: It sounds like he was low on ego and high on giving.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just uh, giving without ever
0: expecting this thing or that
1: making you feel that he's giving you know like it's not just giving like just just magical ability to to give and and enjoy it with you and just keep giving without ever making you feel that he gave you that make you feel indebted or whatever that he he gave you something. um so I think that's a very like, that's a trait that's hard to find. You will find accomplished people, but yeah, someone who's able to strike that point as well, where Here. He, genuinely, he genuinely gives, because he has so much experience, so many contacts, so many resources, so much intellect, he was able to give us so much in different capacities without ever, ever, making and it wasn't just like those under him like when he died his his the, the wall of tribute was filled with people from different areas of life because that's he was just a person who would touch the life of whoever he came across in one way or another um so his his wall was like filled with tributes from people of all sorts of um backgrounds walks of life who were recalling instances of how he had touched their lives and and um, and like and, and people were recalling how he always remembered my birthday he always remembered my maiden name you know like like acknowledging human beings around you in ways that make them feel involved engaged special that's what people were recalling he always remembered my birthday who remembers strangers <laughs> birthdays he always remembered my maiden name someone wrote that he always remembered my maiden name who remembers someone's maiden name like like these days like people for example you know it's what, whatever but it's just something like um they'll they'll message you your name is written there
2: um
1: and they will still write the wrong spelling <laughs> right your, your name is right there <laughs> it's there but the, and, and he was someone who remembered someone's name. That's not even part of her name anymore. Uh-huh. Um, so that's just, you know, that just shows how engaged he was um, and how, and, and how he made um, people feel. Right. Um, yeah. So, so those are the things that, you know, you, yeah, that's what I want to um, take inspiration from um, as much as I can. I can never, never be him. But as much as I can, a little bit of whatever he tried to do is um, really the only um, consolation I can give myself.
0: I would like to say in this moment, which maybe there'll be future ones. We may have Mariam on the show in the future. But at this current moment, you're brought... There's so many life messages. Seriously, I could break down the ego point, the the grouping people people grouping together point there's so many like life points we just covered. I just want to point out. We basically covered some of the key summarize of the, everything. <laughs> the mortality. The, there's so many points across We covered
1: quite a few topics. And and I'm and I'm so glad that this was a spontaneous conversation because there's nothing better than that.
0: True that long live spontaneity. Always on each episode I like to have at the end a point. What is a message you would want to tell to all of humanity about something you'd want them to know or something you'd want to say to all people of the earth if you had like a megaphone hmm. that maybe represents something about you or something you'd want them to know. Just a megaphone. I
1: think um, there's several and I could go on and on but one one big recurring realization and reminder that I give myself as well because you know nobody's. Nobody's perfect, and and we always fall short. Sh- we always fall short. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think just thinking about um, people from their perspective that helps a lot because it's um, like always. Yeah, it's just something that. Like someone could be screaming at you right now. Someone could be getting angry with you right now. I'm not saying justify wrong with that, but, but, but step back and think about that same moment, that same issue from the other person's shoes. Um, and it it helps me in, in being able to be more, Compassionate, in being able to be more, um, more thoughtful, more sympathetic. Um, you may never be able to live what they're living, um, but if you just, you know, if you just step back and if you think, okay, I know he's, he appears unfair right now, but he or she appears unfair right now, but, but what is it from? his or her perspective that I should also include in my analysis right now. Um, so yeah, every, like anytime, anytime you, you feel, um, uh, you feel like something's wrong and you have your own perspective to defend, um, think about the other perspective as well. Um, there's never just one perspective and, and no perspective is ever right. Uh, no one perspective is ever right. there are aspects of different perspectives, and it just it just helps to bring people closer um, rather than the divide that it would lead to otherwise because we're quick at we 're quick at defending our own perspectives and and i you know i 've been through it i still I, I still do it you know like something comes up and I have my perspective over it and i 'm quick to defend it then know that the other person has his or her own perspective that is equally. Um, Defendable. So, um, whether it's something small or something about larger public issues, um, just having a, and and this mask example is just one, right? Like, I know this is something very simple. What's the problem? It's like it costs a cent. Like, why can't you wear a mask? But 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 there has to be a reason why they're not doing it, despite everything. They're 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 watching the same TV. They're watching the same news that you are. Um, they're also scared. Everybody's scared for their life, right? Why are still the, why are they still not wearing it? Um, delve into it. Think about it. Um, um, look at their perspective, because if you just focus on yours, um, it's just going to create a divide and it's not going to, um, you want to bring people closer to make good things happen. That's how good things happen. Divide never, never does any good, right? So, um, Thinking about other people's perspective, I think, has um, more lately helped me in um, just making more sense of why something happens. Um, yeah, good or bad. That's one. I could say millions of other things, but I think it's like enough to end this.
0: <laughs> we'll save that for a future one. There, that's yeah, classic. exactly. <laughs> Dr. Maryam Bakir, I would like to thank you for having been on this wonderful episode of thank the show. Thank
1: you for this opportunity. This was, this was wonderful. I, I really like how spontaneous this conversation was.
0: You know it. And we are out.